Matthew chapter 5. We've been talking about the Beatitudes. We're going through this year, our, our series, our theme this year is called Roots. And our theme, the whole purpose behind this is to get back to the basic teachings of Jesus. The, the basics of what it is that he wants us to do and what we are called to be. And we, uh, we started off in Matthew chapter 5 talking about uh, the Beatitudes. We're going to be going through uh, many points of the Sermon on the Mount and uh, talking about that and talking about some of the, the very initial teachings that Jesus gave to us. And then later on, we'll go into some of the parables and, and uh, things like that. I'm, I'm excited about it. I always love getting into uh, the things that those of us who grew up in church grew up learning about in Sunday school. Those, the lessons. How many of you, listen? I, I wrote this, one of those silly Facebook things. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Sunday school? Um, I wrote flannel graph. How many of you grew up with flannel graph in Sunday school? Yeah, there's, we're a dying breed. Uh, that flannel graph, was, they had like a, um, a, something they put on. It was a felt, yeah. It was felt with a scene on it, and then they had little paper characters that had little sticky things on the back or felt on the back, and you put it on there. That was flannel graph. For those of you who are from the digital age, we actually had to make our own fun with them, and the teacher would go down. You know, anyway, anyway. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying studying it. I'm enjoying going through it, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. And we're on, uh, we're, we're almost halfway through uh, the Beatitudes. We've, co- we've covered the first three, and uh, today will be number four. It's going to take us a couple weeks to get through this one. Uh, but would you stand with me as we read our text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, which is the text for uh, this series. Jesus is speaking. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, you may be seated. The last one there, that that whole last uh, last couple of verses is going to be very interesting when we get to that. We're supposed to remember the, the word blessed means to be uh, happy, to be joyful, to be extremely happy because of the situation you find yourself in. And Jesus himself says we should be happy when we're persecuted. And uh, that's going to be very interesting to get into and to find out just what it is that he's talking about there. Now, the Sermon on the Mount me, uh, the Sermon on the Mount tells us what healthy Christianity is. It tells us what functional Christianity is. It tells us what it truly looks like to live a life totally surrendered to, focused, and in passionate synchronization with the plan of God for our life. For many people, for many situations in life, and many families, many issues in life, functionality is not present. In fact, dysfunction describes many lives, many homes, many areas of life. And that's why it's so important 
that we are grounded and we know what the roots are of our faith and the foundation of our faith and where Jesus says we should be so that we can check ourselves, our growth, our, where, our, our positioning in life, in our faith, and find out exactly what we need to do to get back to his standard. Now, we've covered the first three Beatitudes. The first one, as we just read, was the poor in spirit. And Jesus said we should be happy uh, because we the, who are poor in spirit realized our great need of God. That was the very first one, remember? Jesus said, you're, you're blessed, you're happy because you realize that you have a great need of God. And that leads a person to salvation. And then once you accept Christ as your savior, we move on to the next step and understanding that we need God more and more in our life. Then we went on to uh, blessed or, the, or happy are those who mourn. And we really kind of broke this down and, and got, us, got it to the understanding that what Jesus was saying is we're happy those who, are, who, are, who mourn are happy because they understand their great brokenness before God. And before you can ever, and this goes with everything in life, um, but especially in your walk with the Lord as a follower of Christ, you can never be healed unless you realize you're broken. And I don't know what it's like for you, but for me personally, the closer I walk to Jesus and the deeper I get into my faith and my life, the more broken I realize I've been in the past. I realize that he's healed some areas that were broken that I didn't. Anybody ever be, you don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to out anybody here. But you ever, you ever realize when you look back and you kind of do those, those, um, those self introspections, you realize, man, I was really broken in this area, but God has healed me. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know he brought healing into my life in that area, but I was really, really broken there. So we're blessed or we're happy, we're joyful because we realize that we have a great brokenness in life that only he can fix. And yet last week we just finished up with blessed are the meek because they understand the importance of great submission to God. If we're going to do anything of value for his kingdom, we must realize that we need to put ourselves under his authority and under his leadership and that is so difficult to do. We zeroed in on men a little bit on that because for men, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to not take the reins of our own lives. And as American men, because we're told that, you know, you need to pull yourself up and you need to uh, make your own way in this world and to give up the ultimate leadership of our lives and to give up the direction of our lives and surrender to his is a very difficult thing for anybody to do. And that brings us to the fourth beatitude, which is one of spiritual action. Now, all three of these first beatitudes lead to number four. Remember, the first four deal with our relationship with God. The next four will deal with our relationship to others and the way we present ourselves to others. But these first four are all about our relationship with God. And number four is the capstone of the first four. And the three things that he has taught us bring us to this place. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those, or happy are the people who are hungry and are thirsty for righteousness. 
And that may sound very simple on the face of it. And we may just look at that and glance and say, oh, I, got, I get it. But there's so much here that we need to understand. If we're truly going to be people who are passionate about our growth, if we're truly going to be people who are passionate about understanding what it is that he wants from us and what our role is in the kingdom of heaven here on earth, boy, we've really got to, we, we've really got to get a hold of what this means. The goal of this lesson is about learning to rely on God for your greatest need. After you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you weren't saved to be satisfied. Many of you have heard that phrase, that, that term before in church. You're not saved to be satisfied. You're saved to serve. You, once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, you are now secure. You're sec eternally secure in Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, that whole process there. But you're still here. You're still here. So what are you still here for? You're here to do something productive and fruitful for the kingdom of God. Listen, we have slipped into an area of Christianity where people are now all about self-help. It's all about me, self-care, self-love. Well, that is opposite of what Jesus taught. Yes, we're supposed to be we're supposed to, to make sure that we are okay and we're close to God and walking with God, but that's not where it ends. The reason you become healthy as a Christian, the reason you stay healthy as a Christian is so that you can be more of a servant for the kingdom of God. That's the purpose of it. It's so that you can become more of what he wants you to become. So, we're learning about, we're going to be learning about relying on God for our greatest need. And that greatest need is spiritual growth, growing in your faith, relying on God's provision, God's ability to provide, God's ability to direct, God's ability to give us what we need is a truth that is taught and played out in many different stories of the Bible. Remember the story of Elijah in the Old Testament where he, he, uh, he fought a great battle spiritual battle with the, uh, the servants of Baal and, he, and, and through the power of God, uh, God was proven to be God, sending fire down from heaven. You know that whole story. But then he was exhausted and he ran into the wilderness and he was very discouraged. It's a great, when, when you get discouraged and when you're struggling in your life, Reading the story of Elijah in the wilderness is a great place to go. But why would I want to worry? Why would I want to read about somebody who's been discouraged when, when I'm discouraged? Because you see that even in his deep discouragement, almost depression, that God provided for him. Remember, God sent the raven. He, put, he camped him beside a brook, fresh water. And then he had the ravens feed him. Ravens brought him food. And when he was restored physically and emotionally, then God said, go out on the mountain. And God, uh, you know, the, 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 the storm, the wind, the earthquake, and God wasn't in any of those. What was he in? God was in that still, small voice. That's where we get the idea of a quiet time with God, right? Because God speaks to us personally in those times where we're quiet before him. David wrote about that in Psalm 23. You lead me beside still waters. You make a table for me in the presence of my enemies. When I am calm, when I am 
when I am quiet before you, that's when you restore me. That's when you show me and reveal to me your provision for my life. That's what we're, we're going to be looking at. And we see that all through the Bible. Jesus showed us this example, the, the example of relying on the truth of the word of God when he was in the wilderness. You remember, right, after Jesus was baptized, what happened? He went out to the wilderness for 40 days, right? The Bible says for 40 days he did not eat. And remember, Jesus, although he was still God, we call it the hypostatic union, he was all God and all man. Jesus was God, but he still took on the properties of a human being. So 40 days, listen, 40 minutes without food starts kind of kicking my gears in. You know what I'm saying? 40 days. And then at the end of those 40 days, Satan comes to him and tempts him. And what, is, what was one of the temptations? Jesus, just look at these stones. You're the creator of all things. You made all of this. Why are you hungry? Seriously? All you have to do is look at these stones and speak to them. I mean, Jesus already said, he, he told us, if you don't praise me, I'll make the rocks cry out, right? I'll make the rocks cry out to praise me. So Satan knew exactly what he was doing when he said, well, Jesus, you're hungry. It's a long journey back to wherever it is you're going. So just look at these, these stones and turn them into bread. You've, you've got that power. What did Jesus do? He gave us an example to follow by leaning on the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, everything Jesus did was a lesson for us to follow. This fourth beatitude is reinforced in many of Jesus' teachings. It's reinforced in many of the inspired writings of the biblical writers and the account of many followers living effective lives that impacted the world for the kingdom of God. And in fact, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are great examples of, for us of this because they rely on the leadership of God in their lives. What Jesus does here in this fourth beatitude, I think is very, I think it's very interesting. And I think it's a great lesson for those of you who teach. It's a great object lesson, right? Jesus takes a physical need and turns it into a spiritual truth. He cites hunger and thirst. Everyone, think about it. Everybody that was listening to him and everybody that, were, that has read this, every one of us that is hearing it now, everyone that is reading these, these beatitudes, these teachings of Jesus, we all understand what it means to be hungry and thirsty, right? Whether, you know, whether it's because of, of a long day's work, uh, if it's physical labor, whether it's uh, you've been out working in, in your yard or out on a long bike ride, working out in the, in the gym, whatever it is, we all know what it means to feel hunger and, and to be thirsty. We all understand that. And to illustrate his point, he brings a physical condition into the matter. He compares our need for the righteousness of God. And we'll explain what that is. He, said, he, he compares our need spiritually for the righteousness of God to our physical need for food and water. (laughs) 
Jesus goes on in his ministry to continue to reinforce this. Remember the two times? There's at least two times recorded in the Bible where Jesus fed crowds of thousands with just small provisions. The most famous is the feeding the 5,000. He fed 5,000 people, uh, well, at least 5,000, 5,000 men. Uh, It's estimated that it could have been many, many more because in those days they only counted men in a crowd. Five biscuits and two fish, and he fed over 5,000, and there were still 12 baskets left over. Jesus was saying, when you, he's teaching a spiritual lesson by meeting a physical need. These people, remember he said, they won't make it home unless they eat. Spiritually, there are days when you will not make it home without his help without being able to, without relying on him. And he's trying to get us to understand this. Jesus wants us to understand that the longing in our spirit to know and to grow are designed and given to us by God to lead us to his word for answers. I believe with all my heart, Jesus uses this illustration of being hungry and thirsty physically so that we will understand what it absolutely means when we feel dry inside, when we feel empty inside, or in those times when we feel hungry inside. You had those we- you ever had those weeks before where you say, man, I wish it was Sunday because I need church right now. Listen, we can read our Bible. We can listen to our, our Christian music. I loved hearing people talk this morning. Aileen is a, she's, she's getting into Maverick City music right now, right? And that led to a conversation, a couple different conversations that broke out about Christian music and about different things, different uh, artists go, that are going. I love hearing that. I love how as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we help each other out to find new ways to feed ourselves. And that's awesome. You can have your own praise and worship service in your vehicle listening to Christian music, right? You can have a a great time with God as you read or as you listen to your Bible. Some of my favorite times are when I'm at the gym. I'm working out and I'm I'm working on my physical body, but I'm also listening to the scriptures and, and, and working out my spiritual body. Or I put on some great music and while I'm while I'm doing physical work in the gym, I'm doing spiritual work in my soul. And Jesus wants us to understand that those cravings in your spirit, the hunger and thirst for truth, the hunger and thirst for something that is going to make a difference and is going to draw you closer to Jesus, maybe on a Sunday morning, that desire, man, I know, I know it was time change Sunday. There's, there's a couple Sundays of the year, there's a few Sundays of the year that I know are going to be rough on attendance in church. One is time change, especially in the spring, because People, if you don't, you know, not everybody has the, uh, the automatic change in their phone. And sometimes you have to, remember the days when you had to automatically change your alarm clock because it was plugged in or does anybody still use those little round things that they, you wind them up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're good if you lose power, right? And they ring. And those are the, those are the things that you pick up and throw across the room because if you, you know, but It's that desire that says, I'm going to make sure. Or you get up late and listen, I've got to get to church today. I've got to be there. I've got to be there. Or over the course of the last two years where it's been, man, I need to get back to church with my brothers and sisters. I'm hearing that a lot more lately 
from people. I need to be back in church with my brothers and sisters. I need to be where not only, I, I, listen, I can hear the word online. I can watch it online, but it's, it's gotta, I got to be there in person. I got to have that in-person time because I need, I need that hug. Now, we're a, if, if you're watching us online or if you're new here at New Life, this is a hugging church. I, it really is. It's a hugging church. And my, I'll tell my father because my dad's not here. He's, I'm sure he's watching. But my dad is not a hugger. He does not hug, especially other women. Uh, he does not. My dad does not. He's, he's God bless him. My dad's going to be 88 next, next month. And uh, he's a New Englander. He's an old New England gentleman. And uh, kind of guy that takes his glove off before he shakes your hand, right? That's my dad. And my wife, Erin, when she started coming to this church, is like, I don't think so. I don't shake hands. I hug. My dad's like, no. Uh, young lady, I hug my wife. And that's it. Well, hey, man, if that's you, that's cool. You can just stick out your hand and you can shake hands with people. But understand, you're going to be attacked and assaulted here at New Life by people who like to hug. And sometimes, listen, sometimes you have that embrace with people where you just, you ever have that? I just, I just need a hug. I, my, our kids come up to us and it annoys me to no end because I've got, I'm, I'm partly like my dad. They're like, and the girls now, because they're girls and they're teenagers and they're really kind of annoying because <sighs> they're teenage girls. I mean, geez, it's the law. I'm like, dad, can I have a hug? No, my gosh, what are you thinking? I'm reading ESPN online. Do you not understand what's important in life? And it's like, okay, okay. And then they have the gall to say, well, that's not a proper hug. Excuse me? So, yeah. I'm, so if you're not a person that likes hugs, you want hands. But we all need it sometimes. We all need that interaction. And we're at a point with many people right now, where you just need, you feel that need, that craving in your spirit. I've got to be in church. There's something missing. I'm longing for something. Man, that is designed to be in your life, in your spirit by God, because he said, it's, it's great. It's a happy time. It's a blessed time when the children of God come together. When we come together, man, this is our time. This is family time, right? This is where the church comes together, where, where the body of Christ comes together, and we're family. That's what this is about. And that longing and that desire, when you're not in church, when you're not faithful and you're struggling, you're saying, I really need something that's there, that's designed, that's that hunger and thirst that he's placed within you as a, as a follower of Christ to desire the things of God. Now, let me tell you, there comes a time when those things can waste away and they can slide away. And it can become so, you can become so numb to those cravings that now they're just a distant memory. That's why it's so important when you feel those cravings, when, when those urges are in your, your spirit, when he's saying, hey, you need to connect with me, that you listen to it and you follow it. Now, this first part of this message on uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I'm going to lay some important foundational groundwork. Some of it's going to be theological. 
And I'm going to try to, uh, I'll, I'll break it because I think it's incredibly important for us to understand what he is trying to say here to us and what the meaning behind it is. We talk about righteousness and we throw the word righteousness around in church a lot and in Christian circles. But a lot of times as Christians, we have our own language, don't we? We have Christian ease. We have our own language. And we say things that if you've been in church for a long time, you understand how to use it, but you may not always, and I'm not trying to speak down to anybody, but you may not always understand what the meaning is behind it. When, when uh, the churches I went to that used the King James Version, I was real good at that. I'd quote the scriptures, man. I could quote them. I have no idea what some of the words meant. You know, I had to, literally had to do a word study in the Greek or in the Hebrew to understand what that word meant. But we get that way. So I think it's important many times for us when we get to the principles of the word of God, such as righteousness, God's righteousness, what exactly does he mean by that? What truly is he trying to say to us? So this first part of this message is going to be breaking down some of the, uh, some of the, the, uh, the, the foundational teachings of what righteousness truly is. And then in the second part, we're going to talk about how we actively pursue righteousness in our lives, how we actively go after it. Because hungering and thirsting, that's a, that's a uh, the, the, and, and filling that hunger and that thirst, filling those needs is an action. So if we're going to fill the hunger and thirst for righteousness in our spirit, we're going to have to take some action. So that's the second half of the message. We're going to st- probably start that next week. So there's the first thing I want us to understand about this is this, this truth. Jesus is our source for spiritual nourishment. Jesus is our source for spiritual nourishment. Now listen, I love to read books. I love to uh, listen to sermons, but I need to make sure that personally I am connected in my personal life with Jesus Christ through prayer and through studying his word. His word is what he has for us to know today. Now, I know there's a lot of teachers going on now that are trying to disconnect Jesus from the Bible, which is insane. What does John chapter 1 say? The word, capital W, became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, when Jesus came down, Jesus was the living word. Jesus was the walking, talking Bible. He he was the living word of God. So you cannot separate who Jesus is from his word. They are one and the same. And when it comes to our spiritual nourishment, we we can be challenged, we can be taught, we can understand from reading books written by authors, from, I mean, listening, teaching, having conversations is great, but there is no replacement for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in your spiritual growth. Personally, reading his word, listening to his word. I know nowadays uh, with technology, man, you can listen to the word of God. And I think, to me, that's awesome. And I, I, I listen sometimes and I'll stop it and I'll try to rewind it. Although going back is really tough for me because I'm not... Uh, most of it's just to touch the verse and it goes back. But anyway, uh, that personal 
time of reading the word and digging into it, not just reading a devotional, reading the word for yourself. Hey, memorizing it. Remember what, remember what David wrote in, in the book of Psalms? Your word I've hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. In, in, in Psalm 119, that's in verse 105, verse 119, 9 through 11. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. With my whole heart, I've sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Then we jump down to verse 105. Your word, I've hidden my heart, hidden my heart, that I might not sin against you. That's pretty, that's pretty basic. That's a pretty basic thing to understand that we need to read the word of God and understand the principles, learn them, know them, and then apply them. Like I said, we're going to be getting into that. But Jesus is our source for spiritual nourishment. And what's so cool is he teaches us and he taught in his, in his teachings, he taught us this truth. Remember, Jesus calls himself the bread of life, right? He called himself the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 35, and then verses 48 through 51, he says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the, the, the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus taught that he is the bread of life. He is our our, our spiritual food. And he gave the illustration of the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember, they didn't have any food. And what did he do? God provided manna from heaven, right? God then went on and he provided quail every morning. God met them at their physical need for nourishment. And he says here that I am the bread of life. Listen, you can, you can search everywhere. You can do everything. You can try to join a church. You can, you can jump and, and you can put your trust and faith in a denomination. You can do all those things. You can try to do it on your own and be who you, you think is the best version of you. But that's not going to help until you realize Jesus is the source of spiritual nourishment and he is the bread of life. And only by consuming his teachings in your spirit will you grow then you're never going to get it. What keeps us from that? Well, remember, we finished up last week talking about the meek, right? The meek, and we said meekness is not weakness. You know what it is when you say, I don't need the Bible, I don't need church, I don't need brothers and sisters in Christ? You know what that is? That's the opposite of meekness. That's pride. Well, you're just saying that because you're a pastor. No, I'm saying that because I'm a dude that knows what, it's, what I can become if I don't stay connected to Jesus Christ. I know what I can become if I don't have good, solid Christian people in my life. I know what my home life will be if I'm not the spiritual leader in my home. I know what my marriage can become 
if I, may, if I don't do my part to make sure my wife and I talk about the things of God and stay connected about the, on the, uh, uh, with the things of God in our marriage, not just individually. What's one of the, re- one of, one of the greatest reasons for divorce? Aside from that sweet young thing or that hot whatever he is at work, don't ever, listen, man, you, you, want, you want to come to me for marriage advice and you say, well, my work wife, well, there's your problem right there, okay? My work wife, my work husband. That's what I want to do. Really? Really, you're calling somebody else your spouse? Come on, I mean, that's a whole different, let's just not go down that road, okay? Let me just say this. And I won't get derogatory. I'll just say, that's not smart. All right? But one of the reasons, one of the great causes for divorce is that people, when, when I counsel people or I've talked to people, they say, we just grew apart. You know how you prevent growing apart? Grow together. Grow together. Grow together. Well, you don't know how hard it is. <laughs> I was married for 30 years. Some, some of these people here... Um, they've been here through, through parts of both of my marriages. And uh, yeah, those, for those of you who didn't know, I'm a divorced pastor. So I know what, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to, to see that happen and to go through that. So how do you prevent that? By growing together. Grow together. It's okay to talk about the Bible. Listen, ask my wife. It's okay for us to have a different view of something in scripture. It's okay for us to go back and forth about it. And Aaron, for so long, in a, the first part of our marriage was like, well, why? Why? Aaron, please, I'm trying to be calm. <laughs> there are some things about our faith you just have to accept. That's why it's called faith. That's why it's called faith. There are some things you just have to accept. Listen, you're never going to sit down across a table from Jesus and have a, a, a physical conversation. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And there are some things in the Bible that you may not understand that you may look at and say, well, how is that supposed to work? That you just have to trust him that it's going to work. And once you, like that Indiana Jones movie where he's going after the Holy Grail and he comes to, he can see it on the other side of this long chasm. Well, how are you supposed to get there? You're supposed to step out on faith, right? And once he took that first step, remember those of you who watched the Indiana Jones movie, I know my wife doesn't watch him. What happened? He took that first step and the rock appeared, right? And then the next one, as he, as he exhibited faith, the path appeared. Sometimes, and that's a, that's a very spiritual principle that he wants us to step out on faith. So we have to take him at his word. We have to trust him. Although that is very difficult. Listen, I'm not saying this is easy street. That's very difficult stuff. Times like now where the world has gone crazy and we're seeing all kinds of things happening and you're deciding if you've got more than one child, you're deciding which one you're going to sell so you can buy groceries and fill up the gas tank. That's just a joke, by the way. My children are not for sale. Right? Okay, Brian. <laughs> Jesus here tells his followers that he's the bread of life that can satisfy your soul. 
Now, he goes on into a deeper meaning that some denominations, some church groups have, have completely taken out of context. Jesus here is laying the foundation of, uh, it, it, this is where we get the idea of communion from, but what Jesus taught in John chapter six, uh, John chapter six is not a physical consuming of Jesus. There are churches, there are denominations who have the doctrine of transubstantiation, which means that when, uh, when we come to communion and it's blessed by uh, the leader, that it abs- actually, it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Well, that's, first of all, that's cannibalism. And I'm not being funny. That's exactly what that is. Secondly, that's just so wrong. That's way off base. That's not what Jesus was talking about at all. Jesus was giving a word picture of what we are supposed to do spiritually with his teaching. He is the bread of life. He is, remember I said earlier, he's the word. This is the word. This is Jesus' word. Jesus was the word when he was on earth. He was the word incarnate and he left us the word behind so that we can consume him, so that we can consume his word so that we could take his word into our life and allow it to nourish our soul. And it can allow allow us to build and strengthen our bodies. Listen, hopefully next month I'm going to be having a surgery. And most of you know about it, I'm having my stomach cut out because I have a little problem called being overweight. Okay? They're going to cut out 75%. You know what the best part of that surgery is? They're cutting out the part of my stomach that produces the hunger hormone. So you're not hungry. Some people have to remind themselves to eat. That's fine with me because I've got four children raised and I, I, I need the help. I, listen, I've been there. I know what it's like. I need the help. So I've made this, this decision. I use that illustration to make this point. Many of us are getting very close to the point where our spiritual bodies are no longer producing that hunger hormone. We're completely ignoring those hunger pains in our spirit. And while Jesus is telling us, listen, I'm the bread of life, consume my word. We're saying, I got a better way. I got a better way. Jesus didn't just call himself the bread of life. He goes on and he says, I'm offering to you. I offer to you the water of life. And we all remember the story of the woman at the well, right? John chapter four. The disciples go in to get some food and Jesus stays at the well. He knew what was going to happen. Here comes this woman who has had a pretty rough life. She's been married to five different guys. And the guy that she's now with, she's she's living with him, which is a violation of the law, the, the Mosaic law. Okay. Needless to say, this woman's life is amazingly dysfunctional and is the farthest thing from the truth of the word of God. And that's why she came in the heat of the day to take water from the well. Because she was the talk of the town and nobody wanted to be associated with her. So she comes to the well and Jesus says, ma'am, could you give me a drink? And she says, you have nothing to draw with. He says, ah, wait a minute. (laughs) Here's an opportunity. Ma'am, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't ask me for a physical drink. You would ask me for living water. Wow, here we go. Here we go. Buckle up, because Jesus is about to preach, man. He says, this living water, I'll give to you. And you'll never 
be thirsty again. Now remember, this is a woman who lives in, in hot, arid country. And they don't have air conditioning. <laughs> and it's a, it's a tough place. She knew what thirst meant. So she thinks he's talking about this magical, mystical water that she'll never be physically thirsty again. She says, sir, give me this water so that I'll ever have to be thirsty again. She's, remember, she's walking from town to a well to draw water and then to walk back. That's a lot. And he says, no, I'm not talking about physical water. I'm talking about spiritual water. I can give you water that will spring up from your soul into eternal life. And your spirit will never be thirsty again. I will give you the secret to eternity. That's what Jesus was saying. So he says, not only is he the bread of life, he's the water of life. And that's where we get the idea of hungry. That's, that's where he comes up with his teaching. You're happy if you hunger and thirst for righteousness because you'll be filled. How can he say that? Because he's the bread of life and he's got the water of life. He can fill your needs. That's what this is all about. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the answer to your question. I am the fulfillment of your longing. Everything you're looking for is found in me. And I'd say to you this morning, those of you who are here live, those of you who are watching online, you're searching for something and the answer is right in front of your face. It's Jesus. He is the bread of life and he will give you the water of life. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is teaching here, I think there's a few things we need. And as we get into this principle of righteousness, I think there's a few terms that we need to understand. Because like I said, we can say, as Christians, we can say a lot of things that we don't really understand. I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I was a young pastor, a young, young preacher, there were things that I, uh, terms I would use that I didn't fully understand. And I really had no business using them. So I believe it's important if we're going to say, I want to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, that we really know what we're talking about. So some important terms to understand. First of all, what exactly is righteousness? What do we mean, by, what do we mean when we say we want to be righteous in God's eyes? What, do we, what did Jesus mean when he says, you're going to be happy and fulfilled if you hunger and thirst for my righteousness. And it's in, in, incredibly important that we understand that it's his righteousness. The root word of the word righteousness is right. That's the root word, okay? It's defined as a God-centered attitude that no human can attain through their own efforts apart from God's plan. To be right in the eyes of God, and we're talking spiritually here, to be righteous in the eyes of God is to have a God-centered attitude that no one can attain on their own. We can only do it through God's plan. Now, that goes against our grain. First of all, we don't like to admit that we have a need, even though Jesus said, you have a need. And you're going to be happy 
when you realize you have a need of me. We don't want to admit that we're broken because nobody wants to admit that we're broken. Nobody wants to admit that we're not perfect. Nobody wants to admit that we don't have it all together. We all have to be, we all have to put that facade on when we come to church. I've got it all together. I am perfectly fine. Don't worry about me. Go find somebody else to be your project. Well, Jesus kind of shatters that when he says, you're going to be happy when you admit that you're broken. You're going to be happy when you admit that you have a need. And the way you're going to see those things filled is by realizing that you need to be under my leadership. And that leadership will lead you to understand that that hunger and thirst that you feel for righteousness is exactly what I've given to you and designed you with so that you will pursue me more. And righteousness is not righteous, not being right in your own eyes. Because that's what we will do as human beings, right? We will fix the problem. Any of you fixers, it's your purpose in life to fix everything, right? From the, from the time on the microwave, which sometimes never gets fixed, to people's lives, right? You are the fixer, and you're going to fix everything for everybody. But man, this is something you can't fix apart from the power of God and the leadership of God in your life. And that's why it's so difficult. That's why Jesus gave us three principal teachings leading up to this. This is like the, this is like the big prize on the board at Six Flags. Okay, you have to work your way up to getting the big one. We will try to be right in our own eyes. We will try to set our own standards. We will try to set and, and make up our own morality. We will try to make our own rules and try to have God play by our rules. And he says, that's not the way it works. You're only going to be happy and fulfilled. You're only going to be fixed. You're only going to be, uh, your brokenness is only going to be fixed if you realize the needs you have and the craving you have is me because I'm the bread of life and I offer to you the water of life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 address this. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith and it is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Verse 9 tells us not from works so that no one can boast. You see, the teachings of Jesus are reinforced throughout the word. Paul says very clearly to us in Ephesians, you can't do it on your own. Oh, you can try, and there are many churches, many denominations, many religious faiths that try to put the emphasis on us as human beings and our own good works and our own efforts. Even, even churches and denominations that claim to follow the Bible. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that's just not going to work. In fact, the Bible says that our righteousness compared to God's righteousness and in God's eyes is nothing but filthy rags. Now, in human standards, we define righteousness as the quality of being morally true or justifiable. That's why we can say, that's why we can make ourselves feel like, hey, if I'm just good enough, then God will accept me. And my belief is that, you know, people say my belief is that when I get to heaven, there's going to be a set of scales up there and 
And my good deeds are going to be on one side. My bad deeds are going to be on the other. As long as my good deeds outweigh my bad, God's going to say, okay, you're, come on in. St. Peter is sitting at the pearly gate, and he's going to open the gate for you, and he's going to say, now, how that ever happened, where that ever came from, who knows, but that's what people think. And that's just the farthest thing from the truth. Once again, because righteousness in the eyes, the righteousness that a human being can come up with is nothing but dirty clothes to God. Spiritually speaking, righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God. That's it. Being right in the eyes of God. In what areas of life? First of all, in your character. I talk a lot about character and integrity. They are so important. Especially in today's environment, when it seems like society has lost character and integrity. And nobody wants to tell the truth. Nobody wants to believe the truth. Nobody knows the truth because there's so many different versions of the truth out there. When you, it, it, you, you can't have your own truth. Remember the, the, the old, old saying, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts? Well, that's just kind of gone out the window because everybody thinks they have their own set of facts now. And just ask, just, you want to drop a bomb in a, in a, in a room and just walk away? Just talk about vaccinations. <laughs> Talk about COVID. You know, I know we're, we seem to be moving beyond that now, but everybody's, everybody's a Facebook PhD on COVID, right? Being right with God in our character. That means we live right. Even when nobody is watching us, we do the right thing. And with, with your kids, you know as well as I do, that is what you teach them. You teach them, no, 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 no. When you're with me and when you're away from me. Listen, anybody can dance to the right tune when they're right in front of the, the, the music. But when you're away on your own, and who knows what you become. So it's important that we pursue God's righteousness in our character. In our conscience, the Bible says as a person thinks in their heart, that's who they are. Pursuing God in your conscience, well, Pastor John, I, I don't have a perfect conscience. Nobody does. And it doesn't mean that you don't have rough thoughts. It doesn't mean that you don't want to, like, I've used enough children illustrations this morning. Won't do any more. doesn't mean that you you have those thoughts of driving that driver off the side of the road when he just cuts you off, right? Because women are great drivers, guys. It's the men. It's the men. It's my wife, she'll tell you. She is a great driver. I suck at it. It's just the way it is. Uh, but it's like your conscience, your conscience. It's not that you don't have those thoughts. It's that you correct yourself when you have those thoughts and you know that those are wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. It's wrong to have those thoughts. Have righteous, be righteous in your conduct, in the way you treat others, the way you treat your spouse, the way you, you act and the way you work and righteousness in the area of self-control, which is tough. Self-control is incredibly difficult because we want to give ourselves excuses, right? Famous one is, Oh, this is the way God made me, so you need to get used to it. Okay, all right. That's between you and God. 
But he wants to make you better, and he wants to make me better. And we need to pursue his righteousness in these areas. Righteousness, therefore, is based upon God's standard because he's the ultimate maker of standards. He's the only true lawgiver, as we see in Isaiah 33, 22. So that's righteousness, but within righteousness, there's a couple other things we need to understand. First one is the concept of justification. Justification, that's a, a big theological term. Simply put, to justify is to declare righteous. When we're talking spiritually, to justify is, declare, to, is to declare righteous. Justification is an act of God in which he pronounces the sinner to be righteous because of the sinner's faith in Christ. Because you put your faith in Jesus Christ and accepted him as your personal savior, you realize that, there, that you were nothing on your own, that you could not be good enough to get to heaven, that Jesus' death on the cross, his burial and resurrection, paid the price for sin that you could not pay. When you realize that and you accepted him as your savior, the Bible says God the Father declares you righteous. He declares you righteous. He declares you justified. I'm sorry. He, he declares you justified. But not because of your own actions, but because of the actions of Jesus Christ. Because you've put your faith in him. The Bible says we are now clothed in the righteousness of God. A great, a great way to see this and understand what we mean by having to be justified in God's sight is this. God the Father cannot look on sin. That's why, remember on the cross, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said that right after the Bible says God turned his back on his son. He turned away from him because he could not look on the sin that was laid on Jesus. When Jesus died, the price was paid. And then they were, then that relationship was restored. And we, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in his action makes us justified in the sight of God the Father. Justification has to do with God's declaration about the sinner. Justification doesn't make you holy. Okay? Being justified in the eyes of God does not make you holy. We're going to get to that part. That just makes you acceptable in the eyes of the Father. Okay? Justification just makes you acceptable in the eyes of God. It does not make you holy. And holiness is a way of living, something you grow into. In the process of justification, this is the way it goes. During the process of justification, the elimination of the penalty of sin, which is death, is accomplished. Justification is more than an acquittal. It's full acceptance and restoration to favor with God. A great way to, to understand justification for us in the eyes of God is this, just as if I'd never sinned. God the Father looks at you. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, he looks at you justified, and that means he looks at you just as if you had never sinned. You are acceptable in his sight. It restores us to friendship with God. It makes us co-heirs with Christ. It's the credibility of Jesus' righteousness that is accounted, that is put to our account. 
The next term, very quickly, the last two, the next term is sanctification. This is the process of us becoming holy. Now, we're justified by God in his sight through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're sanctified because through the process of living a holy life according to the standards that are set for us in the word of God. Philippians 1.6 tells us that we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will continue that work in our lives, continuing to make us holy. You, will, you can continue to grow in your faith. We had a great conversation about height her earlier, right? And uh, one, of the, one of the little boy, young boys, I won't say little because not little, said, I'm the tallest kid in my class. That's one thing I never got to say. Never got to say. Because about eighth grade, I stopped growing. Seriously, I, was, I hit five, eight in eighth grade, and that was it. Boom. I'm done. I'm right here. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, there is no limit to how much I can grow. The growth process is continual until I reach heaven. And that's the process of sanctification. The process of becoming holy, becoming stronger in my faith. And that all leads to the final glorification, which is a permanent state of holiness in heaven. But that's for eternity. That's, that's to come. We don't, have to, we don't have to concern ourselves with that right now because that's going to happen when we get to heaven. Right now, we need to be concerned about our sanctification. We're going we're gonna to break that down more as, in, next week as we get into this. What does it mean to be sanctified? Because that's a very theological sounding term, right? Sanct- very Christian term, sanctification. What does that really mean? What does it really look like practically in our lives? Well, you have to come back next week to learn it, all right? Let's, uh, let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you, Lord, for your safety. I know the roads were kind of rough out there. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, thank you for this church that we can come to and worship and celebrate. And Lord, thank you for the process that you have laid out for us whereby we can grow closer to you and become better followers of yours. Lord, I pray that each one of us will tune in to that hunger and thirst that we have, that you've given to us, Lord. May we realize that that is the spiritual condition that you have given to us to understand our need to grow. Father, I pray that we'll all desire and and have that desire to learn more about you. Lord, I'm so thankful for what you're doing here at New Life. So thankful that you brought us through these last two years. And here we are, Lord, with excited people, just excited about learning about you and growing and, and sharing our faith with this community. Father, I pray that you continue to bless each and every one of us. Bless each person as we go from this place today. May we go forward as worshipers. May we go forward ready and willing to walk through every open door that you put in our path. And God, may we see the opportunities to live and share our faith as God-ordained chances to tell others about you. Bless us, Lord. May we enjoy the beautiful weather that's coming up this week. And may we be ready to always, always, always give an answer of the hope that is in within us. In your name we pray. Amen.